listeners, and thanks for tuning in to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today, joining me via Skype from Lincolnshire in the north of England, is Benjamin Zephaniah. He has a website, www, that's not even necessary anymore, is it? It's just benjaminzephaniah.com, one word, where he describes himself as a poet, writer, lyricist, musician, and naughty boy. And I don't think I can make a, a better introduction of anybody than that. I first became aware of Benjamin in the series Peaky Blinders, in which he plays the role of street preacher Jeremiah Jesus. Thanks for joining me today, and welcome on the show, Benjamin. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I recently watched a video on YouTube uh, uploaded by Channel 4 News titled Benjamin Zephaniah on Windrush, Anarchism and His Time in North Korea. I was very keen to watch that, but even though I watched the whole thing, you really only gave a couple of tantalizing hints at your trip to North Korea. So we're here today to delve into that and do a deep dive. Well, yeah, and I can only answer the questions that I'm given. So um, <laughs> exactly. sometimes they put these things in the headlines to attract people. <laughs> now, I believe you've spent a lot of time in China, as well as being a world traveler but you spend a lot of time particularly in China could you tell us about that and, and your interest in that country um this is going to sound a little bit stereotypical for someone of my generation but I used to love Bruce Lee ah. as a kid <laughs> and um but you know he was born in San Francisco I think I'm right yes I know I know but it was about the Chinese culture you know yes. in, the, in, the, in his movies he would talk about the Shaolin temple and you go wow ah. the temple you know where Kung Fu started from and um and so I used to do a lot of martial arts. We used to watch the martial arts film, do come out of the, the movie at three o'clock in the morning and try out all the moves there on the streets. Oh boy. And, and then I realized that there was another side of martial arts. It wasn't uh, just the um the fighting. In fact, you know, Kung Fu in Chinese doesn't mean fighting. It means hard work. It means dedication to a project. And so I started to get into the more spiritual side of Kung Fu, if you, if you like. And that carried on for years and years and years. And um, then many years later, I was working with an organization called the British Council. And I was working yeah, with we have, them. We have that. office here in Seoul. And they used to have one up yes, in Pyongyang, yeah. but we'll come back to that later on. Well, I've worked in Seoul. I've worked there at the British Council there. But then that's another thing. Ah. Um, so I was at the British Council in Hong Kong. And I'd finished work, and somebody said, look, we, we, we have this thing where you can just give your passport at the border and just go into China for the day. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to real China. You know? right, right. I was like a kid. I mean, I was in my 30s or something, but crossed over the border and went into um, Guangzhou. It was quite, it, actually, it was, it was horrible because I was, it, not my scene, I was on a coach with, full of tourists. Yep. And I had to go where the tourists go. One of the first places we went to was a cat restaurant where they eat cats. Oh, dear. And uh, I'm a vegan, you know. <laughs> and I just had to sit there because I couldn't, I didn't have the freedom to go and walk where I wanted to go. But I said, I'm coming back to this place. Right. I went to China properly. And I actually did go and train martial arts in, um, in Shaolin Temple. Hmm. And since then, most years I've been back. I've got lots of friends there, and um, my my martial arts teacher is there, and quality of teaching is just so much better. And um, there's something strange that this, you know, um, I always say, it's absolutely true, that I learned more about capitalism in so-called communist China than I ever did in capitalist England, because it's raw, naked capitalism, you know. I went to bed one night, and I remember looking at my hotel window and looking at the... Uh, the skyline, I went to bed, woke up, and the skyline had changed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they put up a few buildings, and I just went, gosh, how did they do that? 
Uh, okay, so you, you spend a lot of time in China. You go there most years. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, just a second ago that you also had been here to, uh, to South Korea. Um, yes. Which of the two Koreas did you visit first, South or North? South. Okay, and so tell us a, yeah. a little bit uh, briefly about your time here in South Korea. Well, like I said, I was working with the British Council. Sorry, I can't remember what year it was, but it was a long while ago. And I'll tell you what I do remember very well. I don't know how this is going to go down because this... Uh, I remember... I remember having a really heated argument with, I did the local TV, and sorry, I can't remember the station. It was a chat show. I've still got it on VHS. I think they sent me a copy afterwards, and I've still got it. Um, and I remember going into, um, just before I went in to do the interview, talking about um, feminism. And these three women really attacked me. I mean, they were so anti-feminism. Women, oh. I'll never forget that. They were like, you know, women don't need equality. You know, we are cute little things that like uh-huh. to be beautiful. And, you know, we don't want equality with men. And this, all this women's rights is just a load of rubbish. It's, and I just thought, wow. And, it was, and it's happened to me before, you know. I'm, I'm very passionate about women's rights and feminism. Yeah. And it's so strange when I have an argument with women about it. Yeah, right. And I'll, just, I'll, I'll never forget that, that, that I'm trying to tell the women that they need rights. And, and I, it makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. But, yeah, I just think, you know, I don't know. It's, I, it, it's a touchy subject because I, I don't want to tell women what's, what's good for them. But at the same time, I just think we need more equality in the world. It doesn't mean that you have to lose your femininity or you lose... It just means that um, when it comes to simple things like, you know, doing jobs, doing the same job as a man, you should get the same pay. You know, you 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 don't deserve to be hit if you make a mistake in the house. Um, all these kind of things, you know. So I, I remember that very distinctively. But um, now I dug up I, one of the I, photographs of. Uh, was it just the one time that you were in South Korea? Yes. Okay, yes. then that was in uh, 2002, because I've dug up on your website there, which uh, for our listeners, once again, is benjaminzephaniah.com. I found the photograph, that, and uh, in the background, there's you on a stage uh, wearing a yes. red top, and behind you there's a red curtain, and it says, Welcome, British poet Benjamin Zephaniah. Uh, <laughs> they misspelt your name, I think, and, and then had to fix it with a pen. Uh, and then underneath it, it says 2002, November 9th. So it was uh, just about winter time in 2002, uh, the same year that the World Cup was uh, co-hosted here in Korea. Oh, I didn't even notice that. I didn't. I do know that. In, I, I don't know if it's in one of the photographs that are online that one of the writers who is with me. Are, are you looking at a, photo, a photograph of other writers? Uh, I'm now I'm looking at a photograph of you standing on a stage with five or six other people, and it says yeah. uh, UK Korean well, Literature Seminar. Well, yeah, one of them, didn't she go on to be a really famous writer? Um, there's a South Korean writer that wrote, um, was it called The Vegetarian? Ah, okay, Han Gang. Yes, isn't she there? I, now, that I can't tell. She might be in there, but I can't tell that yeah. she's in that one. Ah. Well, Korean feminism, you'll be happy to hear, has, has come a long way since 2002. Uh, I, I'm sure you'd, you'd probably not get the same argument that you had back oh, then. Great, I'm so relieved. <laughs> okay, but, yeah, I do, I do want to come back. So you I, I mean, I, the, yeah. I, I, sorry, I was going to say, I remember being quite culture starved. Mm. I was trying to find reggae and hip hop and stuff like that. But then since then, I've seen online loads of Korean hip hop bands and not like dancers, B-boy, yeah. B-boys and stuff like that. So, but I do remember when I was there being quite starved of that. Oh, yeah. And, also, did, yeah. and also, there was some controversy with some, I, I do remember seeing something 
which really horrified me. Um, I was walking in some area and um, some American soldiers beat this Korean guy. And he was an older guy. Uh. And I said to them, what the hell are you doing? And he said, I don't like the way you looked at me or something like that. And I was so angry, but, you know, I was outnumbered. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a pleasant experience. So that was uh, way back in twenty, uh, so two thousand two, and then almost exactly ten years later, uh, in July twenty twelve, you had your first trip to North Korea. That's right. Yeah. And how did that come about? Well, it was always somewhere that I wanted to go. Um, I used to have I used to have this obsession with going to places that were difficult, or were told I was told by my government and my media that was difficult. Or they were the enemy. So many years ago, and I'm, I'm talking about mid '80s, for example, in the in the height of the Cold War, I went to Russia because I was told that these were dangerous communists, and I, you know, well, I'm going to go there then and see for myself. Um, and I've done the same with you know many other places. And so North Korea was kind of on my list. I said, I've got to go there. And there was always this feeling that, you know, nothing goes in and nothing comes out. That's what I understood. I think I was in China and talking about this with some people. And then somebody went, you can go to North Korea. It's quite easy. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. And then um, I met somebody that kind of organizes trips there. And we kind of became friends before I went. You know, he, he'd tell me what was going on there and... We spent some time together. and um, Was that Nick Bonner? That's right, yeah. From Cordial yeah. Tours. Yeah, he's been on our show before. Oh, okay, right. So, yeah, and, you know, he was he was very kind of uh, fair in his descriptions of, you know, what I should expect and everything else. He organized a trip for me. And, again, I was surprised how easy it was. Um, Had you read a lot about North Korea before you went or watched documentaries or something? There's nothing in particular. I've seen the usual kind of, you know, news reports. And I, 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 and I think I've, I've seen a, a couple of films that Nick had made. Mm -hmm. All right, The Game of Their Lives or uh, Crossing yes, the Line yeah, yeah, or yes, State yeah, of Mind. Yeah. yeah, that's right, yeah. And I realise, you know, that, you know, that he's, take, he's got a particular take in those films. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not kind of documentary, the reality of everyday lives. Well, it is in one sense, but, you know, it's following a particular person. I think I remember watching a girl that wanted had some ambition. That's right. There were t two young girls in the state of mind who were practicing for a uh, a gymnastics display. Yeah, so, you know, not every kid in, in, <laughs> in North Korea is practicing for a gymnastics display, you know. So um, I realized that uh, it doesn't matter what you see. When you're outside a country, you'll never get a real feel of it. You can get a, a bit of it, but you've got to be there. And even if you're there, it still takes time. Yeah, and the typical tour to North Korea is only about you know five to seven days long. Um, even a even a long tour to North Korea is only about ten days, maybe two weeks if you're really pushing it. Uh, so it's it's hard to spend that uh, t that kind of time to get to another place. Well, yes, exactly. You know, and most of the time, you know, you're living in hotels. And I mean, when I'm on tour doing my poetry and music, you know. I travel all over the world, but what do I see? Hotel rooms, venue, maybe a television or radio studio, uh, a couple of restaurants. 
But anyway, well, I should say before we turned on the uh, the recording of this uh, of this conversation, you told me that you like to to travel the world, but as a traveler, not as a tourist. So ideally, you like to contact someone in the country before you're going. That you like to have a pen friend and exchange mm. some ideas, so that you know someone when you get there, and you're not just you know um, fly by night guy who comes in with a camera around his neck and a, and a lonely planet guidebook in his hand and, and sort of wandering <laughs> yeah. around. That you like to you know to have somebody there to. Uh, so you feel like you're you know, not quite a local, but at least you know a local. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, yes. Now, in North Korea, that's really hard. Did you? I don't imagine you had any pen friends in North Korea before you went there, right? No. No, I did not. Um, the um, the only thing I did have, um, and maybe we'll come to this later, because I made another trip there, um, was some people who were related to some friends of mine in China. Oh, okay. But I didn't even know about them on the first trip. Um, so, right. Yeah. Um, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah, let's stay on the yes. first trip then. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the first trip you went there with Cordial Tours, uh, what hmm. did you see? It was a pretty straightforward. Um, I had the option of going with a group or just going on my own. I said, no, I want to go on my own. And so I had a pretty straightforward. I was there for, I think it was just over two weeks the first time. Mm. You know, but all I can remember is, uh, uh, you know, the, the underground station, um, I, uh, uh, museums, art exhibitions. I went down to um, Kaesong. Yep, Kaesong. that's right. Yep, very close yeah. to the border. Yes, yeah. But I had lots of interesting discussions. I was really, I think, lucky. I Nick did say to me, Nick said, you know, when you talk to your guide, you can engage them politically. Yeah, and you, and you're there on your own tour, so you're basically, uh, you know, you're a one man show. You're spending all day every day with the same two guides and the same driver, so there's no one else yes. to talk to but them. Yes, yes. Well, I had just the two guides. I remember a separate driver. They were just the, they would drive, and then a couple of times it was only one of them, alternative ones. But on one of my I think second or third day, I was having a heated debate with this lady, and she was it about feminism said, again? <laughs> no, actually, it was I, I, it was just about politics generally. Uh -huh. And um, and she said, I understand how you guys um, think because you know I was educated in the West. And she told me she was um, educated in Europe, and um, her father was um, some high flyer in the. North Korea nuclear program. I was like, what? Wow. And, and so she spoke to me with some knowledge. Yeah. I, I, I have to say that, I mean, you know more about North Korea than most people. I found that when I came back, people would question me all the time about what it's like over there. And, you know, and I really learned a lot from that lady. I mean, I'm interested in history. I didn't know, for example, what the Japanese did in North Korea. She told me, and later on I came away and I kind of looked it up and and, and, and understood it a bit more. I don't know, just some of the stereotypes of of um, what North Koreans are, she kind of broke down for me. And so I, I, I'm, I learned a lot from from her and the other guy that was with, but especially from her, because she was so articulate. And I felt I was really lucky in that sense. Uh, now, when you went there, uh, how did North Koreans interact with you? Yeah, as a as a black British man with dreadlocks, I mean, was it, were you the first person like that that they'd ever met? Well, yes, most people. 
people would always feel that I was a sports person, and I do like sports. So I'm not really keen on basketball. Everybody thought I was a basketball player. Is that because you're tall? I'm, I don't consider myself that tall, but um, yeah, compared to the average North Korean, I'm, I'm tall. Mm. Yeah, I, I, and I love jogging. I did a lot of jogging. Um, did we, and did you jog by yourself, or did you have to jog with one of your guides? No, the guide would wait in a spot, and I would run around and come and, and meet him back. Oh. A, a funny thing happened one day. One day, cause sometimes I jogged on the streets, but it, it caused so much, you know, people would just freak out. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> of I've, course. I've got long dreadlocks, and they see this, you know, me with my dreadlocks bouncing down the street. Yeah. And it was okay. I mean, sometimes we just laughed at the reaction of people. But I remember one day I was jogging in the park and I create. I always created a circle. Well, we created a circle. So, you know, I'd run it once and then they'd know how long it would take me. And basically just, they said they were worried about my safety kind of thing and or worried about me getting lost, this kind of thing. Oh, okay. So you would just do laps of a particular route that you'd sketched out yes. earlier. And one day I was doing this in a park and halfway through this lap, I placed a bottle of water and I would run around, have a drink. And then, you know, as I was passing this water, I would drink. And then after a couple of laps, I went there, my water was gone. Uh -oh. So I said to the guy that was with me, I said, um, somebody stole my water. And he went, no. I said, yeah, somebody stole my water. He said, no. I said, there's a thief that stole my water. Went, we haven't got any thieves here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I said, you have a thief here. He stole my water. <laughs> and he was insisting that I was going crazy with my imagination or I was trying to say bad things about the North Koreans. Right. <laughs> yeah, you never said, had a bottle of water. Yeah, this could have happened in London. I said, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. Right. <laughs> but sometimes, I mean, that did sometimes uh, kind of jar me a little bit. I remember I was going to take a photograph of a little boy. He was, he was just kind of looking at me. And then I got my camera and I thought I'd just take a photograph of him. And it wasn't kind of what I call poverty porn or anything like that. You know, the kid was just looking at me, interested in me. Was it out on the street or, or at a particular yes, site? Yes, out on the street. Okay. It was out on the street. This completely strange guy just popped up from nowhere and just tapped me. He said, no, don't take a photograph of this child. And there was another in child. English. And he said, in a kind of very broken English, yeah. Ah. He said, said, photograph this child here. Ah. And there was another child just to, you know, just a, a little bit to the side of him. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he went, this one is smiling. Uh... <laughs> you know, stuff like that kind of gets me because I just, you know, I think it's unnecessary. It was just, this this little kid was just attracted to me. I could see he was looking at my dreadlocks and right. and where the other one. Did children generally uh, react differently to you than adults? Yes. Uh, children want to come and touch me and touch my hair and, Adults just, you know, stand off and strange creature, but children, um, there's a few times, especially with the smaller children, where they would think I was some kind of, and, and I, I get this through translation, yeah, most yeah. of the time, some kind of doll, some kind of puppet, or something like this, you know. Wow. I, I see one photograph here on your website. Our listeners can go and find it in your uh, North Korea album. There's a photo of you with some very, very young children, I'm guessing probably no much older than five. It looks like you're in the kindergarten, uh, yes. and there's probably 10 children around you, and you're uh, hamming it up for the camera. Uh, you look as if you're sort of fallen backwards on your bottom, and these children are all standing around you. Uh, smiling and, and gesturing and uh, your your caption says these kids are crazy it rubbed off on me <laughs> well I, 
I tell you what, I mean, what, when I was there, I visited a couple of schools and I visited this kindergarten. And the first thing that I wanted to get over to the kids is that, how can I put this? Relax, you know, I'm a fun guy. I just chill out because I could see by the way I was introduced and the people with me, they could be very stiff. I performed a couple of poems for them. Now I know that they can't understand the poems, but I can make them understand by my movement. You know, there's one special poem I do everywhere in the world. I can do it at universities. I can do it at kindergarten. It's a poem about my mother. I love my mother and my mother loves me. We come so far from over the sea. We heard that the streets were paved with gold. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. I love my mother and my mother loves me. We try to live in harmony. You can call her Valerie, but to me, she is my mummy. And it goes on and on like that. Uh-huh. And somebody will say, this is a poem about how he loves his mother. And sometimes the kids will practice, I love my mother and my mother loves me. That always breaks the ice. Then I got another poem about my sister, because I got a twin sister. And it's about when me, when me and my twin sister were born. Mm-hmm. I kind of jump into the audience. I will have fun with them. I'll pick somebody up and pick one of the kids up and play with them in front of the other kids. And we'll just have a bit of fun. Mm. I, 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 like I said, I'm Kung Fu crazy. We'll do a bit of Kung Fu or something like that. So there's a completely relaxed atmosphere. Yeah. You know, and, you know, within 15 minutes, kids are climbing over me and I'm going on their play things and stuff like this. And I can see the adults that are going, this guy is crazy, you know. <laughs> um, but I always, I always think when I leave there, uh, for years to come, mm. they will remember me. They will remember me for the rest of their life. Yeah. It's, I'm probably the first, some, maybe the only black person they'll ever see certainly for those years, and I want them to have a really positive memory. Did your guides, uh, did they sort of get the vibe? You know, did they try to, uh, well, did they get into what you were doing or did they try to sort of stop you or persuade you a little bit from uh, being too relaxed and too carefree? No, no, it, it, it's, it's interesting because before I went in, Nick said to me, I'm quite a political writer and quite a political person. And... Um, Nick said to me, you know, when you're there, you can talk politics, but when you come out, when, I think he asked me, I think he put it as a question, you know, are you planning to write something about North Korea? Is this, a, is this you doing journalism? I said, absolutely not. I mean, if I wanted to do that, then I would say that's what I'm going to do. And um, if I wanted to do it, I wouldn't do it in that way. i say, this is just me being curious. Um, and, um, and so uh, when I'm there... I, I I can't remember how it happened. How the guys knew I was a poet. I think I may have told them, or they, or they may have got the word from somewhere. But they said to me, you know, do you want to do your poems? And I said, well, maybe, you know, if the setting's right. And I was thinking of, you know, the kindergartens and the schools, maybe. But then they said, oh no, we can get you into some universities. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can get you into some universities, and they're interested in English, and they'll be interested in the way that you use English, because you know. My English is non-standard English, especially when it comes to my poetry. And they said they would love you to do that because they hardly ever come across a native speaker, especially a native speaker like you. Yeah. So they were then like, yeah, you know, we'll get you here, we'll get you there. And we went completely off the plan. This was still on um, your first trip, right? The, the two weeks long. still on my first trip, yeah. Right. Hongyang University. I went there twice on my first trip. And to perform to, to university students? Yes. And did, were they st- students of English in particular or just sort of a bit of everything? They were students of English. Mm, okay. Because I watched them doing a lesson or doing lessons first. Yep. And it was very formal. And they listened to the Beatles, I remember that. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> they were listening to the Beatles and then they were 
trying to decipher what the Beatles were saying. And I, and I had to join in. Probably wasn't Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. That's a bit hard. <laughs> no, <that>. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I, I remember talking to them about accents and, you know, the, the, the Beatles are from Liverpool and they speak in a particular way and I'm from Birmingham. And so that's how that came about. So, no, they were very, um, they were very happy for me to do what I did. I think they were very excited because I think a lot of the tourists they come across are you know, just tourists. They're not going to share themselves. That's right. And you were happy to uh, to go up there and do some uh, some poetry. Yes, yeah. Well, I didn't expect to, but I was I was happy to. Yeah. Now um, let's go on to uh, your second trip. Then, uh, how long after the first trip was it that you went back again? Uh, two thousand and twelve was my first trip. Was that right? Yes, I think two thousand and fifteen was my second trip. That's right. Okay. Because in, in two thousand and fourteen, if I remember correctly, there was a um, there was an exhibition in London. Do you know about this exhibition? No, I, want, I was actually got a question on that. Yeah, do tell me about. Let's talk about the exhibition before we go on to your second trip. Then, yeah, it was an exhibition in the North Korean Embassy, an art exhibition. I think it was four different artists that were kind of exhibiting their work in the um, embassy. Now, the North Korean embassy in London is really unusual. I don't know, do you know, do you know it? Or I've, I've seen never it? been. I've only ever heard stories, so do tell. Right, so most of the embassies in London are in a particular area. They're certainly in London rather than in Manchester or anywhere like that. So this is in London, but it's out in the suburbs. Uh-huh. And it's just a house. <laughs> it's just a normal you know. house. It's just a normal house oh. in a kind of quite a wealthy corner, um, but it's just a it's just a normal house. And if you were driving past, the only thing that you would notice is probably you know the North Korean flag. And most people don't. I remember after I discovered it, I was driving past. I'd say to people, you know, that's the North Korean embassy, and they'd go, "What?" Yeah, right. So that's where the exhibition was, and I went there after I came. This is after my first trip. Yeah, I went there, and it was. Um, it was typical North Korean art, you know, the commercial art, the, you know, trains and beautiful scenery. And, and a lot of people were complaining saying that it wasn't political enough, but I don't know what mm. they expected. I um, think they wanted the propaganda posters, you know, the one where they're uh, beating up American soldiers or that sort of thing. Yeah, there was, there was, I can't remember seeing anything like that. No. I remember the day I went, um, there was a couple of British and a German comedian there mm. who um, I think it was the first time I've ever seen them so serious. Because, I mean, the, the, the work is, it didn't say much, you know, about, in, in, in the way a Western person would kind of um, observe art. But technically, it was really good, a lot of mm. it was good, you know. And the artists themselves would, would be there, and you could talk to them through interpreters. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. So the, oh, so, so the actual artists were there on site to answer questions about their work. Oh, yes. Um, and I spent a whole day there and really enjoyed it. Then I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a trip back. Now, I should explain, the second and third time I went back were only separated by a week. Oh, okay. And this time I went with some Chinese friends. This is a little bit unusual. It's complicated. I won't get into it now. But I was allowed to go in with some Chinese friends because I was in China doing some work. And there was this whole, for the most part, quite elderly Chinese that I went in with. Mm-hmm. It was interesting because I saw a completely... Uh, different side. This may sound odd, but a lot of these Chinese were quite nostalgic when it came to seeing North Korea the way it was, because they said, oh, 
I, I remember I was talk, we were talking to a Chinese, uh, sorry, a North Korean guy. He was saying, he was boasting, uh, oh, in North Korea, you know, women don't smoke. Uh-huh. Uh, what was the other thing? And we are, um, we are not like down in South Korea and in China where your women and men start to mix with foreigners and uh, stuff like this. And, um, and then you had these old, like, old Chinese ladies, mainly ladies, but some men as well going, yeah, you know, I remember the good old days <laughs> when China was China. Um, was this whole discussion happening in Chinese? Yes. Oh, yes. and you, you can follow Chinese? I can follow Chinese a little bit, yeah. Okay. If Chinese people are having a conversation, I can get the gist of the conversation. I may have to interrupt enough, you know, sometimes and say, what does that mean? Right. Um, I can understand it much better than I can speak it. Okay. So was that something that you learned initially through the Kung Fu? Yes. I'm, I'm afraid I had a bit of kind of British arrogance in that, you know, English is the international language. And for a long <laughs> time, I wasn't learning anything. Mm. And, um, well, I speak some Urdu from, you know, the language of Pakistan and yeah. India speak some of that and um and then in china i had this martial arts teacher this tai chi teacher actually mm -hmm. he's really funny when people are training with him they are falling around laughing and i just felt so left out as i've got to learn some chinese <laughs> this guy is so funny and he's so he's so wise everybody talks about his wisdom and his and his, and his humor and i thought i've got to get some of this you know because right. he gets lost in translation so anyway, so um, I was there for a few weeks. Then we went back into China and stayed there for a week and then got permission to come back in again. Was and this with a third group that you came back? or, or No, just... the, 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 the next time I came in, I came in with the group, but then I went on my own and met them on the way out. I was back with um, the girl from the first trip. Oh, the, the, uh, the guide who had been educated in the West. Yes, yeah. So she was very relaxed on, the second, on that third trip because she was a... Take me into people's houses and and stuff like that. Well, now that's very unusual. Tell us about that. Well, I I I think that she really did want me mm -hmm. to write something about North Korea that was really nice, because you know she kept saying she kept hinting that you know you can write about this because these people are very happy here and I could see ah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But you know I wouldn't play that game. But she was very relaxed and uh, she and I could see. At the one point where we were walking past the place and she said, oh, why don't you come in and see this family? And it was almost as if she was kind of, she was trying to make it look spontaneous, but I could sense that, you know, no, no, this house has been tidied off. <laughs> you know, these people are expecting me. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is a normal house, Benjamin. This is, this, this is how the average, you know, North Koreans live. And I, I kind of knew it wasn't. But I did get to see lots of kind of, how can I put it? I was going to say nooks and crannies, but little areas where I don't think a lot of people saw. Right. Yeah. The the, the small villages are usually not part of the tourist trail. Yes. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was staying in a hotel. Sorry, in Pongyang. Uh, I can't. I can't remember the name of the hotel, but I'm told there's only a few hotels. That, that is it the one that's on the island, or is it the one with two towers? It's the one with two towers by a bridge. Uh, yeah, I think that the, the Cordial Hotel uh, has has two towers. Uh, and the one that's on the island that they like to put the tourists on because it's hard for them to get off it is called the Yangakdo <laughs> Hotel. And that's got, uh, uh, it's very memorable for having a bar on the ground floor with a giant aquarium. And there used to be a, uh, a turtle swimming around the aquarium. And now there's a small shark uh, swimming around in that aquarium. No, I don't remember that. Okay, so perhaps you're in the Cordial Hotel. That had a, a bar yeah. upstairs. Uh, yeah, well, there was a, 
the chef there um oh i should explain what i used to do i explained i said earlier that i'm a vegan so yeah. i used to take bags of this dried tofu that you get from china for my protein and i just said to the chefs anybody who's cooking for me just do me rice and vegetables don't do any fancy stuff i just want it plain because i've got my own tofu one day the chef kind of came to my room and went why are we just doing you rice and and uh, and vegetables and i would insist that the vegetables were fried because they were fried them with meat with animal fat and stuff like that and then you know i explained that um what my dietary requirements are and why i'm a vegan and all that stuff and then he went, look, no, I promise you, we can cook you vegan stuff and we can cook you what you want and it won't have any kind of meat contamination. And then he did. And then there was a, yeah, that very same chef. Uh, one day he came to my room to give me some food and the lady came, my guide, and they were talking in North Korea. And then she went, oh, do you want to go to his house? He's inviting you to his home. Oh. Yeah. And then I went home with him and met his, met his, daughter and his wife and they cooked me a meal at home and that's the hotel chef yes wow yeah. i still haven't done that so they might, they might be very disappointed that third trip there was that your longest trip in uh, in north korea yes yeah because yeah it was and, and just you... over under four weeks okay and, and you went uh, and, and and saw more university students and did more poetry yes and were, were they the same students you'd seen before or, or was it a different group each time the second time I went to Pongyang University, I went to a couple of universities in Pongyang. They seemed to be quite close to each other, if I remember rightly. I went to one where, and I think it was called Pongyang University. Well, it, the the uh, the Pyongyang University of of uh, Foreign Studies is uh, is one that I, I can think of. Uh, also, there's the there's the Kim Il Sung University, named after the leader. Well, I think it's I think Pongyang University is the one where I went, and they the second time I went, I saw the same students again. Because they'd taken a verse of my poem yep. and analysed it, for want of a better word, and and told me my they told me their thoughts on it. Um, and well, so it was a light. That sounds interesting. Well, I've got a poem called "This Poetry," and it starts by saying, "This poetry is like a rhythm that drops. The tongue brings a rhythm that shoots like a shot. This poetry is designed for ranting, dancehall style, big mouth chanting. This poetry won't put you to sleep, saying, follow me like your blind sheep.'" This poetry is not party political, not designed for those who are critical. So they looked at that and they were saying, because it's about the oral tradition, mm -hmm. and it's about poetry that kind of comes from people that's passed it on, passed on by word of mouth. But they needed to decipher things like, you know, this is spelled D-I-S. Right. Now, why are you spelling this like this? And I'm saying because it's written phonetically. It's the way we speak. We don't say this and that. We say this and that. Um, so this poetry is like a rhythm, rhythm, not rhythm, because especially black guys and even a lot of the white kids don't say rhythm, they say rhythm. And so why is it spelt like that, that drops? What does it mean, a rhythm that drops? I literally have to show them the way you dance the reggae and you drop your bottom down and your back. Uh -huh. I'm doing it now and you can't see me, which is really hard. <laughs> um, um, the tongue brings a rhythm that shoots like a shot, it's about the speed and the rhythm. Designed for ranting dancehall style. What do you mean dancehall style? And I'd ex explain that I'm a poet, but actually I perform alongside music and I perform in clubs. And so, you know, that kind of conversation we had just over that one verse, you know, I remember us talking for hours about it. Wow. It's, it's so, so much seems, seems so alien to them because 
they study English very formally, but uh, when they come to music, they have to they have to uh, be a bit more creative. And the music they do obviously is very mainstream, the Beatles and, and things like that. But when they you know when they come across black English, if you like, for want of a better term, that really threw them. And so I really enjoyed it. I remember really enjoying having those conversations with them. Have you ever thought about doing a more long-term cultural project in North Korea, like uh, teaching there or making a film or doing something else? I have thought about it, but I haven't thought very deeply about it. Because, like I said, when I was, when I was there, you couldn't even have a phone. And, you know, when I tried to take a photograph, you saw what happened to me. And um, well, you, I told you what happened to me. Um, but I would look, I, I tell you why, because I, for example, I found quite a lot of hostility to the Chinese from everyday Koreans. How did they exhibit that? Um, well, they just told me that, you know, uh, oh, and I think it's odd because you, you may know more about this than me, but they were, I, I don't know, I found it like we want to go our way. We don't want China to tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. And communism as well. I, I'm always very careful now about calling, you know, North Koreans communists because so many people I met went, well, we're not communists, you know, and they, they would talk about their system and they would say, you know, we have our own system. We are not copying China. And that's with people who could express that, you know, who sometimes they speak a bit of English, sometimes. What I found when I talked to other people was that we want to join together with our South Korean brothers and sisters, but we don't want America involved. We don't want America in that conversation. I empathise with that, you know. If I am having an argument with my um with my um sister, and you know we want to talk and, and make up, I don't understand why Donald Trump has got to mediate. <laughs> well, it, there's a long and complex history there uh, about that. You identify politically as you identify as an anarchist, don't you? Yes. How how does that feel? Uh, how do you? see you know the the systems of government in china and north korea being an anarchist how does that work well people can be very happy it's just but the problem is with with anarchy is people don't understand it when most people hear the word anarchy they think of like <laughs> people going i was going to say when most people think of hear the word anarchy they think of anarchy yeah, you this is think like, of the they think thing. of <laughs> people going crazy on the streets and stuff like that you know they don't think of spain after the after the, you know the, and the, the, the anarchist system that was set up in spain which was ironically crushed by communists because it was a real bad example the idea that people could actually control for themselves really control for themselves without a big state um and um it's really hard for us to to imagine. So, you know, there's, there's very few countries in the world that are anywhere near anarchy because they all have states, they all have flags, and they all have. And it's very hard for us to imagine. Um, but people find it hard to imagine. We now have to have somebody to do politics and, for that matter, religion on our behalf. We have to have these middle people. We can't imagine ourselves doing it. That, I think, uh, applies to most people around the world. I always find that when I sit down and talk to people about what anarchism really is, they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But it has to make sense to critical mass. Right. Did you have some interesting chats about anarchy and what it is with your North Korean guides? No. 
I mean, they never once asked me, you know, what my political views are. I do remember, actually, I do remember, um, <laughs> I do remember having a conversation with this lady where I said to her, okay, bear with me now. I wanted to get her to, this was in the early days of our conversations, and I wanted her to open up. And um, we were talking about nuclear weapons, and I said, um, you know, I'm not one of these people that goes along with my government, you know. I'm, you know, I'm not going to come here and say, oh, North Korea bad, the West is good, blah, blah, blah. I'm an independent thinker and I can think for myself. And I was explaining that we have been told that North Korea wants to get this bomb. And we've told the same about, about Iran. And I said, well, look, I understand enough about Iran to know that what we get in the West is quite a lot of propaganda. On one hand, we've told that they want to be a nuclear state. They want a nuclear bomb. On the other hand, we're told it's an Islamic totalitarian state. And I'm saying to her, to just to kind of lighten her up, I'm saying, you know, and because I believe it's true, I said it can't be both. The Islamic, the Islamic mullahs have said a bomb, a nuclear bomb is un-Islamic. So it can't be an Islamic state and a nuclear power at the same time. So which one is it? Maybe that applies to North Korea. And she just went, no, we want the bomb. (laughs) (laughs) She just went, went, absolutely not. Uh, We want the bomb. (laughs) We want something to reply with, you know. And that was her thing. So we want something to reply with. But, you know, there's something really refreshing about having a straightforward answer from her, you know, and just seeing it from a point of view. What's Rastafari and how do you intersect with it? Okay. Uh, it, it, it goes back a long way. So, um, you know, I am born in Britain. My mother's from Jamaica. My father's from Barbados. Mm-hmm. But we know that originally my foreparents came from Africa. Depending on how far back you want to go, your foreparents came from Africa too. But, you know, for this conversation, my foreparents, not so long ago, yeah, came from Africa as slaves. And in Jamaica in the 1930s, there was a guy called Marcus Garvey. And Marcus Garvey preached that, if you like, preached that black people need to have pride in themselves. Don't think that you are less important than the white man, because the white man is telling you that. If you don't have pride in yourself and understand your roots, then you've just come out of slavery, but you will be forever in kind of uh, mental slavery. He's... One of his mottos was, you know, they take away the chains, but they will use us with brains. So you have to, as Bob Marley, the singer says, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. And he said that religion is actually holding black people back. And because, you know, if you are Koreans, if they're religious, what God looks like, they show you a God that's Asian. And if you ask, you know, Europeans what God looks like, ironically, even though Jesus came from you know, Southwest Asia and North African stock, um, they'll show you a God that looks like an Italian. Black people will show you a God that doesn't look like them. So he says, you know, look towards Africa for your inspiration. And then Haile Selassie, he was um, like emperor in Ethiopia, who's kind of related by lineage to Solomon, these biblical characters. And then the Rast, and his name, his, his name before he was called Haile Selassie was Rastafari. And so that's where we get the name from. And that's how the movement started. Now, after that, Rastafarians go into different directions. You've got some Rastafarians that are really religious. There's about three, well, there's more than three, but there's three big churches of Rastafari, different 
isms, if you like, you know. Uh-huh. And then you've got like people like you know, I don't know, myself and Bob Marley, who are more political Rastafarian. Uh-huh. You know, we are more freedom fighters, and we believe in kind of spreading a message of love and unity and anti-imperialism and and stuff like that. So that's what Rast. That, you know, that's it's a very difficult thing to say in a in a in a nutshell. But did you get into a discussion with about that with your North Korean guides? Uh, yes, sometimes because they would ask about my hair. You see, so I yes. explained that you know this is Rastafarian hairstyle, which. Yeah, I'd never say that in the West. It's a hairstyle. They say it's the original hair. So, um, but you know, I'd, I'd explain a little bit about Rast- what Rastafarianism is, and they really enjoyed it. You know, I think we had like really good kind of two-way conversations. You know, because they also wanted to hear about the conditions of black people in England. You know, so you know, it, it was really uh, productive in that sense. It was a bit of cultural exchange, if you like. I wonder if we can um, if we can look at more broadly at how do we bring peace between countries, peace, peace between even between Koreas, right? They're uh, uh, they're the same race, they're the same culture, they've spoken the same language for a long time, and yet you know for the last seventy years they've been at war with each other. Um, in fact, this month is the uh, the anniversary of the the seventieth anniversary of the start of the Korean War. And today, the day that I'm speaking to, it's uh, an, a kind of an ironic thing. Uh, this is today is the twentieth anniversary of the signing of the June fifteenth North South Korean Joint Declaration, which was signed back in two thousand between the then South Korean President Kim Dae Jung and the Supreme Leader of North Korea Kim Jong Il. And they were, you know, hoping at that time for uh, unification, reconciliation, peace. Um, as you said before, without the Americans, just you know, Koreans, uh, Koreans together. Uh, both of these men have since died, and at the time they signed th- that declaration, there was lots of hope. Now, unfortunately, twenty years later, it looks like they're as far apart as ever. And even there was supposed to be a number of commemoration events today, uh, but they've almost all been cancelled in South Korea because of threats and a lack of communication that have been coming from North Korea in the last week. Uh, what what hope is there? Well, I'm not immersed in Korean politics, North or South, but there is nothing like people power. And I know that's limited when it comes to North Korea, but I think if South Koreans feel that they really want peace with North Korea, I think South Korean people must be more vocal. Don't rely on the leaders. Let the leaders, it's got to come from the bottom upwards, if you like. And, um, you know, it cannot be ignored then. We've seen this time and time again, when politicians are slow and the people just come to a place where they've had enough and they really rise up. I've seen meetings with North Koreans and South Korean family members and they're so intense, they're so emotional. Yeah. And they always drive me to tears, you know. Oh, it's hard to and watch. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we want that energy, like, when well, I can't say we want. I think if we could have that kind of passion from South Koreans demanding some kind of unification, some kind of dialogue with North Korea, some meaningful dialogue, um, then, you know, I know there's not a physical wall there, but the wall will come down. We, we saw it happen in Germany. It's possible. Yeah. You know, get to a point where the, where the politicians just 
the centre can't hold anymore. You know, people outnumber politicians completely, you know. Again, it's going back to anarchy. It's not the same as anarchy, but it's like people find it hard to imagine. When I talk to my my East and West German friends who 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 said, you know, we thought we were going to have to live with the war forever, and then we just felt, no, we can't take it anymore. And the war came down. Communism fell. Yeah, it all happened very quickly without people expecting yes. it. Yes, I, you know, I just, I would say to, you know, if I was in South Korea, that's what I'd be saying. I'd be campaigning, campaigning, and it wouldn't be about, it wouldn't be about capitalism or communism or anything like that. It would be about families, people wanting to unite. Yeah, and and sadly, those people who have, uh, you know, living relatives in North Korea, whether it's a brother or a sister or a child or a parent, uh, every year, you know, they're dying off, right? Because they're in their eighties, nineties. Uh, and and there's there's so many uh, so so many fewer of them to, alive today than there were 20 years ago. So it, you know, we're kind of losing that chance a little bit. Sadly, mm. but I, I don't know. I mean, this is not scientific. I have no data to back this up or anything like this. But I just believe in the victory of good over evil. I really do believe one day there will be unity. It's just about when. It's just about which generation kind of says enough is enough. That's great. Well, uh, that's a very hopeful and a very positive note uh, for us to finish on. I want to thank you very much for your uh, your time. You've been very generous today, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. I'm glad that we were able to have this discussion today. Well, like I said, I thought I may not have anything to say, really, because I'm not an expert on North Korea, but... Uh, or South Korea, although I've been to both places. Um, I'm just trying to increase the peace. That, it sounds like a great title of a poem there, Increase the Peace. Is that one you've written already? No, no. Do you want to write it for me? <laughs> well, I'm not the poet here. Have you written any <laughs> poems about your trip to North Korea? Because that would be a great uh, way to end the show if you had something, uh, you know, uh, something poetic about no, your times. No. I do mention North Korea in my autobiography, I think. Ah, yes, please give a plug for that. What is the title of your autobiography and where can people find it? Well, it's called... The Life and Rhymes of Benjamin Zephaniah. Oh, I like that. You know, you can find it in the usual places on the internet um, and in your local bookstore if they're any good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the, the Life of Rhymes of Benjamin Zephaniah. Yeah, I do know people have found them in bookshops in Asia. Uh, so, you know, you may find it in a bookshop in Seoul. Uh, and if you do come back to, uh, to Seoul in the future, uh, let me know and we'll uh, get together for a... Uh... Uh, a, a vegan meal. Oh, I'm glad you put vegan in front of it. Oh, All yeah. right, I'll hold you to that. I'll hold you to that. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.